Alright, turn to Genesis chapter 1, and that is why we are here to give God worship. That's why Genesis 1 is written, to give God worship and praise. You know, we excuse many things in this life, but one thing that will not be excused is the deliberate rejection of God. In fact, God will not excuse that. He will not excuse that. Unless people turn to Christ, unless they repent and turn to Christ, their only hope of salvation... He will not excuse that. How many times have we read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20 in this church? Again and again, Mike referred to it this morning. By the way, the notes are back there if you didn't get it. That is on the notes uh, in front of you, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 20. And, that's, and this is what the verse says, the, the section says. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, who hold down, deliberately hold down the truth. These people are doing that. And unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident. That which is known about God is obvious to people. How is this? For since the creation of the world, now we're back to creation. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes. Talk about attributes as character qualities. God is love. You know, God is uh, holy and, and all these kind of things. God is uh, all-knowing. His invisible attributes things you can't see about God, are clearly seen. How, how can we see clearly what is invisible? How is that possible? How are we able to do that? How can we know God's attributes? Uh, because we can clearly see it because, as the verse goes on, it says, those things are understood through what has been made. We can see the invisible attributes, the qualities of God, through what has been made, through creation. We can look out in creation and see this. People can know that God exists and that he is the creator because of creation. They can see the handiwork of God. They see it. and Therefore, it reveals that there is a creator. And as a result, if they reject God, if they reject Christ, if they reject the gospel, those people are without excuse. That's what the verses teach. And yet... With all this evidence, Jimmy, with all this evidence in front of us, as you go outside and you see all these things, trees and birds and uh, plants and all this, with all this evidence, people still do not honor God, as Mike said this morning, as their creator. They still do not give him thanks, as Romans 1, chapter 1 tells us. They profess themselves to be wise. Oh, we're the wise, the intelligentsia, the elite. And yet they are becoming, in process, fools, it goes on to say. Now, for the believer, it should, not believe, it should not be that way. I hope it isn't that way for you. For the believer, I hope that when you watch a bird in flight, or maybe when you catch a fish in, in the water, or even when you see a cow at a pasture, or when you see a lion at a zoo, that your mind tends to gravitate towards God, the creator of this wonderful creation. That you know behind the creation, you acknowledge the creator. Now, do not forget the theme of Genesis chapter 1. The theme is, is, is about the God of creation. Actually, there's two subjects. We've said this many times. There's the God of creation and the creation of God. However, without the God of creation, there is no creation of God. So primarily, the subject is the God of creation. And why am I stating the obvious? It's because I want you to know something very important. From page 1 on the Bible and onward, the whole Bible is about the Lord. It's all about Him. He's to be our focal point. Now, all throughout the Bible, you see also what's happening. Everybody's getting distracted, right, by sin, by worldliness, by all kinds of stuff. And the same thing's happening today. 
we're all getting distracted by a thousand different things, whereas the focal point should be the Lord. It's the Lord we're to love with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, and all that's within us. Also, don't forget the roadmap, at least the one I created. For Genesis chapter 1, I created the roadmap. We're talking about the God of creation. And we said, and you can see it in your notes, that the God of creation is the eternal God, number one. So we talked about that uh, originally. Uh, number two is the triune God. Number three, he's the powerful God. Number four, the saving God. This is all in Genesis chapter 1, believe it or not. Number five, the wise God. Number six, the good God. Now, currently, we are under the heading, the powerful God. And it's under that heading that we're considering all six days of creation. And uh, he's powerful enough to create. How powerful is God? Powerful enough to create an entire universe. Amazing. We've already covered four days of creation. On day one, God brought forth light. Day two, he created the expanse. Uh, day three, he brought forth the dry land and the vegetation. Day four, he created sun, moon, and stars. That brings us to day five. And by the way, we have another, yet another uh, paper back there for the kids to color on. They can color the fish and things like that, so they'll enjoy that. We're on day five now. That's, that's in verses 20 to 23. Verse 20. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters. Kids, he created sea monsters. And every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds Multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Now, in the fifth and sixth days, God makes these living creatures, such as fish, birds, animals, and man. On the fifth day in particular, he makes the fish and the fowl. Let's start with the fish in verse 20. It says in verse 20, God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, he says. Now, those two words, teem and swarms, are, are, have to do with abundance of sea life. And also the movement of sea life. Two things, the abundance of sea life and the movement that you see from the sea life. Both words come from the same root. It's the same term used in Exodus 8.3. Remember the plague of frogs uh, against uh, Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 8, verse 3? And the verse says, Moses says to Pharaoh there, If you refuse to let Israel go, the Nile will swarm. Same word as in Genesis 1 here. It's team and swarm. It's going to swarm with frogs which will come up into your house. Imagine this. And into your bedroom. Like, see frogs in your bedroom? Sometimes, you know, in, in the state of Florida, you see a lizard crawling around in your house. I don't want to see frogs coming back to the back part of the house, right? And so, and, and the frogs into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls and the cooking where you're going to eat from. Frogs everywhere swarming the country. And so, and lots of movement, even into the rooms they slept in. And so, the same is true of sea life. The waters are full of sea life, all kinds of sea life, all kinds of fish. Henry Moore says there's about 30,000 diverse forms of fish alone, 30,000 diverse species, rather, of fish alone. Imagine that. We talk about red snapper. We talk about mangrove snapper. We talk about our handful of species, or whatever these are called, not a scientist. But 30,000. And when you, and Henry Moore says, when you add in the rest of the water, the various water-based living things, the number jumps to well over 200,000 species, 
We're talking about sea life here. As to their movement, if you've ever been fishing, if you've ever been swimming, you know that you've seen fish, schools of fish, you've seen that. And what are they doing? Moving, constantly moving. Now, if you see a fish stop, either he's taking a rare break from his movement or he's dead. Probably the latter, because fish don't like to stop. And so the waters of the earth still teem and swarm with sea life. Now, notice the phrase in verse 20, living creatures. These are called living creatures. Many times in the Bible it's translated living souls, but the context here dictates the translation living creatures or living beings. That term is used for both animal life and human life. It has to do that with that which breathes. So that means not only humans, but animals, fish, fowl. The term is not used of plants. We talked about plant life earlier in chapter 1. Uh, fish, birds, animals, people truly living, breathing, but it's unlike the organic life of plants. And understand also, and I want you to see this, that it's not the waters that produce the sea life. The waters didn't do it. It was the word of God. God said, God said, let the waters teem with living creatures. God gave a command, and it happened. Now, there's two categories of sea life mentioned. Verse 21, there's number one, the great sea monsters. And number two, there's every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm. In other words, there's really big fish, and then there's fish that are lesser than that. Now, why does he call them sea monsters? When you read that in your Bible, why does it say sea monsters? It may say a little something different in your translation. Is this one of the sea monsters? I think of, you know, the Loch Ness Monster over in Scotland. Is that what he's talking about in, in that late large lake in Scotland called Loch Ness? Is he talking about the Loch Ness Monster that people wonder, have I seen this really or not? Sightings, but nobody's proved it. Is that what he's talking about? I don't think so. Are the great sea monsters the, the gods? You know, the people in the ancient Near East back in that day, they believed that, the, the, the pagan peoples believed that the, uh, the, the sea monsters in the ocean were evil. They were gods. They were the evil gods who rebelled against the good gods. And they all thought this, and they were terrified of them. And the people in Moses' time would have known about this. They would have known that's what those pagan peoples thought. Is that what we're talking about here? No, those are just myths that conjured up by people who worship the, the creature rather than the creator. So what are, all these, are these sea monsters? Well, they're large, extremely large mammals and reptiles of the sea, probably including whales and certain sharks, even dinosaurs now extinct. One such creature is mentioned in the Bible more than once, called Leviathan. You've read about Leviathan in the Bible. Uh, Psalm 104, verse 25 says, There is the sea, that verse in your notes, There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number. We just saw that. Animals, both small and great. There are the ships. Now listen to this statement right here. There the ships move along, and Leviathan. Oh, at the same time the ships are moving along? There's Leviathan out there? which you, Lord, formed to sport in it. The Lord formed and made and created Leviathan to sport in the waters. Now, a lot of commentators think that this is a crocodile. But the way the Bible describes it goes well beyond the crocodile. Turn to Job chapter 41. Job chapter 41. And let me take a little time to read about this. Job 41. We're going to read about Leviathan in the scripture. Now, look at, notice the description of Leviathan. Job 41, verse 1. God is talking about his power and his greatness, talking to Job. And he says, and, and as his power as creator, and he says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook 
You think you're going to catch out? You, you think you're going to catch Leviathan with a fish hook, or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose? In other words, can you capture Leviathan with your little weak instruments, or can you pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you, or will he speak to you soft words? You think he's going to be kind to you, Leviathan? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? I don't think so. Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you bind him for your maidens? The modern uh, other translations say, will you put him on a leash for your little girls, for your girls to play with? Right there. Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons? Is that going to do any good? Or his head with fishing spears? What is this? Lay your hand on him. I dare you. That's what the Hebrew says in between the white spaces. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. You're going to lay your hand on him? That's the last time you're going to lay it on him because you're not going to have a hand left or, or a body. In verse 9, behold, your expectation is false. This is what you're thinking. You think you're going to get him? You're not going to happen. Will you be laid low and even at the sight of him? <clears throat> no one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? God says, you think he's something. God, nobody can stand before me. Who has given to me <clears throat> that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs, the limbs of Leviathan, or his mighty strength, or his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there is terror. I don't want to be facing Leviathan. His strong scales are his pride, shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to another, no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. He's, his sneezes flash forth light. I'm not sure what this means here. And his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke uh, goes forth. As for, from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes forth from his mouth. In his neck lodges strength and dismay leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone. Kind of like some lost people we know. But not this guy's heart is probably harder than that. Even as hard as a lower millstone. That's really hard. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear. Even the mighty people fear him. Because of, his, of the crashing, they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail nor the spear, that doesn't do any good. The dart doesn't do any good. The javelin doesn't do any good. He regards iron as straw. He laughs at that. <coughs> he regards bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble before him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. He's, la he's laughing at you if you're trying to get him. His underparts are like shot potsherds. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes a sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him he makes the wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired. Nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Wow. This is, whatever this creature is, I'm glad it's extinct now. I would not want to run into Leviathan on the beach. I don't want to see this. Now why did I take the time to read that Rather long description of Leviathan. Well, first of all, it'll help you with your Bible reading a little bit. But it's because 
Genesis 1.21 tells us that God created the great sea monsters. And this has got to be one of them. What creative power is in God? What creative imagination is in God? And these sea monsters are not gods. They're created by God, though. It's mind-boggling just to think what's in the ocean when you think about this stuff. Can someone throw that? Is anybody available to throw that picture up here on the screen that I gave earlier? That's not my finger. It'll appear. There it goes. That is the killer whale. Can you see it? Killer whale is 26 feet in length and weighs up to 12,000 pounds. The great white shark, I read, is afraid, is afraid of the killer whale. And the great white shark is a formidable foe. The blue whale. I don't have a picture of that. Now, I read this three or four times, and then I read it again, and then I read it again, and I still don't believe it. I still don't believe it now. You can double-check me on this, because I still don't believe it. Blue whales weigh between 110,000 pounds to 330,000 pounds. How is that even possible? They can go up to, and some people say, 440,000 pounds. It can go up to 98 feet in length. Some say 10 stories. Talk about sea monsters? That sounds like a sea monster. And they're, that's certainly a frightening thought, right? But... However, in Genesis 1, there's no sin. Keep this in mind. There's no sin in Genesis 1. There's no sin curse in Genesis 1. Nothing like that going on. So the frightening creatures in Genesis 1, I don't know how that worked. God even puts a stamp of approval on these creatures at the end of verse 21, and and it says God saw that it was good. And so the sea life, the sea world today is totally different from the sea world back in Genesis 1. But nevertheless, the creatures, now we're into the sin curse. I'm not going out there to try to face a killer whale. Psalm 148.7, very interesting verse. You know what Psalm 148.7 says? It says, praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters, and all deeps, all the depths of the ocean. The sea monsters are supposed to give praise to God, the killer whale and the blue whale and the great white shark and all these creatures. They're supposed to give praise to God. It says, praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters. How do they do that? I guess by their very nature, the way God created them. They give praise to him by, by who they are. By, but his, the creation speaks for itself. They do what they do because God created them to do that thing. You know, the same thing is true of us. He designed us to live a certain way, to be a certain way. He designed us to serve God himself. He designed us to serve him and to love him and to praise him. And if we are doing that, we're doing what God designed us to do. And if we're not doing that, we're not doing what God designed us to do. It's that simple. In this, we have commonality with the sea monsters. They're to praise God, and so are we. Same thing. We have the same responsibilities. What's the point? God's sovereign over all these ma- massive creatures. He made them all. He has such great power, he can do this. Even the sea creatures that are fearsome to us, they're nothing to God at all. As he says in Job 41, ah, I'm, you see what the Leviathan is? I'm far greater than that. And he not only created the sea monsters, he created the little fishes. And he created the medium-sized fish and the crabs and the shrimp and the oysters and the clams. And I don't know how many sea creatures are extinct from original creation, but all this. Recently we went fishing and uh, we saw schools of stingrays gliding through the water. And it's a marvel just to look at that. We caught one and, and put it on the deck and then let it go, but it was, we caught one by accident actually. And it was just flapping like this. It was like, this is amazing, God's creation, to look at it up close like that. Caught a catfish, some catfish through those back. We caught pufferfish through that back. 
But we were all amazed at the variety of sea life. God, this is a witness to God's creation, the fish. What about the fowl? Verse 20 says, let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. Verse 21, he created every winged bird. Verse 22, let birds multiply on the earth. Now, I don't know how many different kinds of birds there were at creation, but I understand now there are 10,000 species of birds. At least that's what I read from a reliable source. All kinds of birds, small, large, of various colors, some that fly very high, like the eagle that can land on mountain peaks and look down at its prey from far below, far, far down below. And then you have others that are sitting on a lower level and watch their prey from there. Now, in our neighborhood, we have, we, every once in a while, we'll see a hawk. You have any hawks in your neighborhood? And uh, the hawk is sitting there. On, now, he's a low level looking down. He's on a fence or he's on a tree limb looking down for his prey, trying to get the little creatures down below. And then you see, and we've seen this, little bluebirds fly in to where the hawk is. They see him. They don't want, to get, <laughs> they don't want any, anything to get eaten by him. They come in, or other kind of birds, little birds, and they'll, they'll, they'll zoom in on him, and they'll try to irritate him. Have you ever seen this? They'll try to irritate him, and they'll try to peck at him with the goal of getting rid of him in the area. And I'm thinking, how in the world are these little tiny birds coming on this big hawk who's pretty fearsome, in my opinion, at least. And I've seen them pursue hawks and chase them to another tree. And then I've seen them chase them all out of, the, out of the area altogether. They got rid of them altogether. And I'm thinking, this is the creation of God. This is absolutely astounding. And the Lord who created the birds says in Matthew 10, 29, that even I understand when the insignificant little sparrow falls to the ground dead, I know about that particular sparrow that fell down dead. I know this information. And if I, if I know that, how much more valuable are human beings in God's sight? And don't also don't fail to observe in the text here that God created these birds with the ability to fly. Right away, they're flying. They're not waiting. They're, they're not evolving over years. Finally adapting you know, to their environment, adapting to, with the ability to fly. They're not doing that. They're created with the ability to fly. They're equipped by their creator with that ability. I have an assignment for all you kids in here, by the way. Take one bird this week, any bird you want to, and study it in detail, and you will see what your creator did to make that bird, what he put in that bird. Again, the birds produce after their kind, verse 21. The fish produce after their kind. I keep saying this. God is imposing limitations on the reproduction of these creatures. All reproduction is after its own kind, never apart from its own kind. Verse 22, look at verse 22, the first mention of the word blessing in the Bible. It says here, God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas, let birds multiply on the earth. The first time we see this word mentioned, it appears here that the word blessing includes the ability to procreate. You'll see blessing associated with being fruitful and multiplying in several places in Genesis. Genesis 1.28 talks about man and woman multiplying, being fruitful. Uh, it's applied to Noah in chapter 9, verse 1 of Genesis. It's applied to Abraham in chapter 17, verse 6. It's applied to Jacob in chapter 28, verse 3 of Genesis, and other people. And oftentimes this means blessing has to do with procreation, uh, many, having many offspring. And verse 23 concludes with those familiar words, there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. That brings us to day 6. Day 6, verses 24 to 31. Now, on day 6 there are two acts of creation. There are the land animals created and there are human beings created. 
First of all, the land animals, verse 24 and 25. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Notice these two are called living creatures. A living beings, just like the fish, just like the fowl. And here we have three categories they're broken down into. There's first of all the cattle, it says. These are domesticated cattle. Anything from, a cattle to, from cows to sheep, you could again study each one of these animals and see how amazing your creator designed each one of these. Think about the cow, for example. Now, what's so great about a cow? Well, think about it just for a second. How beneficial a cow is to society Cows are designed to benefit us in so many ways. Some of you here have worked with cows. From cows, we can get dairy products, such as milk, such as cheese, such as butter. They say the average cow produces over 5,000 quarts of milk each year. That's how God created them. Even their manure provides nutrients for the ground. That's true. As for providing food, you can use every part of the cow. Uh, You can get collagen from the hoofs and the bones for gelatin. Uh, the hide of the cow, you can be used for leather. Uh, of course, yes, yes. You don't think I'm going to mention this? What about hamburgers and steak? You, you beat me to the punch on that one. Who doesn't love a good hamburger and steak? God knew what he was doing when he made the cow. It's just amazing. This is just one of many in the realm of cattle that God has used for the good of mankind. And then creeping things. I can see no good for the creeping things, by the way. Creeping or crawling things or legless creatures is what he's talking about here, like lizards, like snakes, like insects, like rodents. Now, I'm not a fan of any creeping thing like this, okay? But this is before the fall. Everybody knows me as the the rat killer, all right? You know that. I'm good at this, okay? This is before the fall. Mosquitoes are not giving people malaria before the fall. But they have many times since. Many, 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 many people have died due to the curse of sin from mosquito bites. By the way, think, here's something to ponder. What was a rodent like before the fall? Or an insect? But let's take for a minute of, some, of, a, of a, one particular creeping, crawling thing, and that is the ant. The ant. You know, usually when you see an ant, you see anthills in your yard, what do you do? You kick them, you kick them right? Or you spray them with spray. Get rid of these stupid ants around here. But the ants are amazing. They, they organize into a colony. They're, a colony. They're not disorganized. They have this big system they have. They work hard. Uh, Each ant contributes in some way. Every ant contributes in some way. Compare these to human beings, by the way. The Bible even teaches we can learn from ants. Proverbs 30, 25 in your notes. The ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. They may not have, well, actually, well, they prepare their food in the summer. They get ready for the future. Proverbs 6, 6. Tells us to go to the ant, you sluggard. Are you a sluggard? Are you lazy? Are you undisciplined? I, I got a, a creature that can teach you how to work. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise and gain wisdom. <coughs> the ant has no chief officer or ruler over her. There's no boss over the ant. There's no one supervising the ant colony. And yet, automatically... She prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. There are ants who can outwork people. There are ants who can prepare better for the future than people. 
That's sad. But they owe all that to their creator. He made them that way. It's amazing. What about the beast? That's the third category. These can be wild animals or beasts of prey. They're not domesticated animals. They're not pets. Although some people seem to think that wild animals can be made into pets. They cannot be made into pets. Don't do that. Generally speaking, they're untamed animals of the wild like lions and bears and tigers and elephants and so on. And these categories, the three categories here, are not intended to match the current scientific classification. That's out now. This is in Genesis chapter 1. Just general categories. In, in, chapter, in verses 24 and 25, five times it says after their kind, after its kind. These produce after their kind. It keeps saying it again and again and again. This constant emphasis on the fact that God imposes limitations on, on creatures and, and regarding their reproduction. They can only reproduce after themselves. Job 40.15, God says, Behold now Behemoth, which I made. I made him, Job, just, uh, uh, just as well as I made you, or human beings. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now, his strength is in his loins, and his power is in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. <clears throat> the sinews of his thighs are, are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He's the first of the ways of God, as far as creatures are concerned. Let his maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food, and all the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants he lies down, and the covert of the reeds in the marsh. The lotus plants cover him with shade. The willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he is not alarmed. You think he cares about that? He is confident, though the Jordan rushes into his mouth. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch? Can they capture him with barbs? Can anyone pierce his nose? No, they can't. Can't do it. This creature is incredible. Here again, Behemoth, first of the ways of God. Commentators say, well, this is an elephant or a hippopotamus. But many creation scientists believe Behemoth to be a dinosaur because the description given here does not fit that of an elephant or a hippopotamus. A man by the name of Brian Thomas, Dr. Brian Thomas from ICR, believes this is probably a sauropod, a species, a species of dinosaurs which was enormous. So you have this magnificent beast, incredibly powerful, but created by one far more powerful, God, the God of creation. What is God's evaluation of his creation of cattle and creeping things and beasts? God says, this is good. He saw that it was good. This is before the fall, remember. Before sin, before the curse. That's land animals on day six. Secondly, he creates human beings, verses 26 to 31. We're not going to really get into the creation of man at all tonight. Until next week, we'll, we'll get into it then. But there's an issue I want to deal with first. And that is the first part of verse 26. Look at that. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and that's the phrase I want to deal with. Now, prior to this, Genesis 1 follows a certain structure, a certain pattern. You saw it again and again. You can't help but see it. For example, verse 3, then God said, let there be light. Verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse. Verse 9, God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Verse 11, let the earth sprout. Verse 14, let there be lights. Verse 20, let the waters teem. Verse 24, let the earth bring forth. So the pattern is very clear. Let, let this happen. Let that happen. And it goes on like that. But now, for the first time in this chapter, verse 26 says, puts it another way. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That's a change in wording. It's different. It's a different 
It's a very personal tone. The other statements God made about creation, not as personal as this one. It's, this is different. Why? Why didn't God say in verse 3, let us make light? Why didn't he say in verse 6, let us make an expanse? Why does he wait until verse 26 to say it like this? The reason is, it's because we have reached the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind. This is the pinnacle of God's creation. God has no intimate relationship, no special relationship with plants or animals or dinosaurs or stars or planets or suns, but he does with mankind. So much so that Jesus came to redeem people from their sins. And so we have this intimate, special relationship with mankind, and God says, this is different, day six, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, everything in creation week, and I like the term creation week, has led up to this moment. Everything has been prepared for the creation of man. Think about it. The atmosphere is ready, ready to go. The dry land, ready to go. There's the seas. There's the plants in place. There's the trees, the fruit trees. You can eat a plant life and eat fruit trees. There's the sun, the moon, stars to guide in different ways. There's the fish and the fowl. There's the animals, all of it leading up to this moment. And now the creature, rather the creator, expresses himself in different words on the final day of creation. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Why? But why does he say us? Why does he say our? Why didn't God say, let me make man in my own image according to my likeness? Why didn't he say it that way? Isn't that what he should have said? You know, this question has been pondered over centuries. What does this mean when God says, let us make man in our image? What does it mean? And so people have put several interpretations on it. One group came along and they said, well, well, it says us in an hour because it's referring to other gods. It was gods who were speaking of the creation of man, not one god. And so when he says, let us make man, he's talking about several gods. Well, that's, the whole context of Genesis 1 shoots that down. It's ridiculous. We can cast that aside. As I... <laughs> <laughs> As I saw a uh, pre preacher one time preaching on the different uh, preaching against the different translations of the Bible, and he had them all stacked here, and he, he got one and told what was wrong with it, and he threw it in the choir loft. Got the next one, got told what was wrong with it, threw it in the choir loft. We're doing like that with this. We can cast aside the first interpretation. Secondly, people came along and they said, "Well, when it says let us make let us make man in our image, he's addressing all of creation. All of creation can help God create man." But in Genesis 1, there's only one creator, and that's God. The creation is the creation. <laughs> the creator is the creator. Verse 27 says, God created man. Somebody else says, well, these are plural forms of God's majesty. It says plur it's plural forms less than are because that means it's plurals of God's majesty. But the grammar will not allow that interpretation, which we haven't, we're not going to go into at all. Just trust, trust me on that one. Number four, some people say, well, God's just deliberating with himself. He's contemplating, thinking out loud. Why does that explain the use of the plurals? It doesn't at all. It means nothing, that interpretation. Somebody else said, verse, verse 20, this is a big one. A lot of people think this. Verse 26, God is addressing a heavenly court of angels, saying, all of you angels, help me create man. But angels had no part in creation. And if they did, which part of us is made in the image of angels? And which part is made in the image of God? And so all these interpretations fail in some way, yet as one older commentator by the name of H.C. Leupold says, though almost all commentators of our day reject the view, and most people reject this view, 
that this is to be explained in connection with the truth of the Holy Trinity, yet, rightly considered, this is the only view that can satisfy. But people, they don't want to believe that. They can hardly imagine that in Genesis 1 would make a, a reference in favor of our triune God. They can hardly believe that, and so they all reject it. And they say, oh, well, Moses would have never understood it this way. You know, he was a monotheist, one God. He would have never understood the Trinity. And so, obviously, he didn't have that in mind. He didn't have that in mind. What did he know of a trinity? To which I reply this, the writers of the Old Testament did not understand everything they wrote. Not every single thing, nor do they need to understand it all. Do you understand everything about the Bible? Every single jot and tittle, do you understand everything there is? Do I understand everything about the Bible? Every day I realize I understand very little about the Bible. When you read the Bible, you're going to realize how, much, how little you understand about it. Did Moses understand everything about the Scripture? No. You know, in 2 Peter 3, 16, the Apostle Peter said of the Apostle Paul, you know, in some of his letters that Paul wrote, there are things that are hard to understand. He, just, he didn't understand everything. The prophet Daniel received visions, and he wrote them down in Scripture. Okay, Lord, I'll write this down as your word. He didn't understand them all. Daniel 8, he got a vision. And in verse 27, Daniel says, Then I, Daniel, after this vision I got, he said, I was exhausted, and I was sick for days. This really had this effect on him. Then I got up, and I carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to make me understand. So Daniel says, in effect, I was totally clueless. I have no idea what's going on here. But I wrote it down, the scripture, and that's all I needed to do. Now, why can't Genesis 126 open the door for the doctrine of the Trinity? What's wrong with that? Why can't it? After all, the first page of the Bible is primarily about God. It's about God. And verse 2 brings up the spirit of God and his role as creator. So you have two members of the Trinity already. And if you recall, we took some time on one of the messages to talk about Christ's role in creation. John 1, 3, all things came into being through him, through Christ. So is the Trinity just a New Testament doctrine? I would argue that though the doctrine of the Trinity is not fully developed in the Old Testament, it's not. Still, we have it in seed form at least. And the plural pronouns in Genesis 126 show us that there is a plurality and the unity of God. It shows us that. Just take it at face value. God is speaking. He says, let us make man in our image. And that's not the only reference in Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Genesis 3, 22. I'm not going to explain all the context here we're going to look at, but this is after man had sinned. Genesis 3.22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Like one of us, knowing good and evil. Like one of who? Like one of the angels? Like one of the gods? Like all creation? Like the contemplations of God? Like the majesty of God? Is that what they became like? No. Man, after sinning, has some knowledge of good and evil. God has perfect knowledge of good and evil. Now man has some knowledge of good and evil. He didn't have this before. Now he does. Not perfect knowledge like God does, but he knows something of evil through personal experience now. Go to Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. Genesis 11, verse 7. This is in the Tower of Babel incident. Just to break in the story, verse 7, you know, people are building this Tower of Babel, and God says in verse 11, come let us go down. This is the Lord talking in verse 6. The Lord says, hey, the people are going to be one people. They're going to have the same language. 
Nothing's going to be impossible for them. Verse 7, come, let us go down. Let us go down. And they're confused their language. So they will not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scatters them. Verse 7, the Lord says that the Lord in verse 7 refers to himself as us in verse 6. Again, it's used. And Genesis is not the only place where you see references to the Trinity. Psalm 2, I have that in your notes. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. Not going to go into all the background of all this. Psalm 2, 7 says, I will declare the the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Long story short, the one speaking is the Messiah. And he says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. That's quoted several times in the New Testament in reference to the father and the son. Psalm 45, 7 has the father telling the son, you love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, your God has anointed you. That verse is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, referring to the Father and the Son as the ultimate interpretation. There's Davidic dynasty references in here, but that's what it's referring to. Psalm 110, verse 1, the psalmist writes, The Lord said to my Lord, David's speaking, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Again, a reference to the Father and Son. In Matthew 22, 44, Jesus gets that verse and he says, <clears throat> he asks this question. How then does David in the Spirit, under the Spirit's control, guidance, call Christ Lord? How does he do that? So do we have a fully developed doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament? No. But we have one that's introduced. It's introduced to us. The door's open. And there's scattered references to it in the Old Testament. So in Genesis 1.26, God himself begins us to teach us of the mysterious doctrine of one God eternally existing in three persons. We don't understand that in a mature sense until we get to the New Testament. But the door's open. We get a glimpse of it here. Any way we look at it, the Trinity is a mystery to us. Never understand it 100%. But it goes to show that the God who is accessible to us is still beyond us. We'll never grasp him fully, except for what the, we can only understand what the Scriptures teach us about him. So all we can do is bow down before him in worship. We'll stop for now. We'll pick it up next week with the creation of man, continuing day six. But for now, let's pray. Father, we're grateful again for your word. Grateful that you teach us uh, on page one about yourself in so many different ways. Lord, we pray that we will worship you and give you the praise as our great creator, our great savior. In Christ's name we pray, amen.